Church in Jackson, New Jersey, by two ways, one passion food truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. As always, handful of stuff we're going to get into today in the world of baseball, sports, and unifying America. I'm setting this video up on YouTube to launch as a premiere. So if there's anything that's on your mind that you want to bring up, just comment. I will address it either in the comment feed or on the next program. Today, we're going to spend a lot of time talking about baseball. And as I promised on my Thursday show, we're going to do a pretty in-depth fantasy baseball preview. So I do think this show is going to have some value. Um, a lot of people are in fantasy sports and, you know, a lot of you are successful. A lot of you go out there and win championships year in and year out. Some of you win championships every once in a while. What we understand about fantasy sports is that there is a little bit of a luck element involved you have to have the players that you draft stay healthy, assuming that you're taking what is probably considered the best player at the best position and the best time at a draft. Because you figure the majority of the people in your league are on the same level as you. There's some people that traditionally underachieve, traditionally don't draft good teams, and traditionally don't have good results. But for the majority of you that do, sometimes it is the way the ball bounces sometimes. Um, a player that you draft so high in a draft, did they get hurt one year when they were healthy every other year? Uh, did you take a player uh, when it that has been so good for so long, and then all of a sudden, that one year that he's on your team, he doesn't do any good? We could all relate to that. So I'll talk about that. Um, I got a top 20 as far as the top 20 players that I would draft in this particular order. And then I got a do's and don'ts when it comes to the prospects. Um, I've studied a good amount of the top 100 prospects in all of baseball. Some of them you may want to take as sleepers. Some of them you may want to stay away from. Some of them you might want to take way before you get into the sleeper round. But there's a couple baseball points going back to history and thinking about things that have happened before. And if you remember... If you're, as a Mets fan, you remember one of the worst trades that they've made in history, one of the trades that blew up their face instantly the second it was consummated within a year of watching this player play for the next team that he went to, you realized it was a mistake. And that was when they traded Nolan Ryan to the California Angels for Jim Fergosi. Now, Ryan was part of a package. Fergosi was actually the sought-after player in this deal. And the Mets had a problem. They couldn't fill third base. Even after winning the World Series in 1969, they didn't have a ton of belief in Wayne Garrett. And they tried, you know, whether it was Joe Foy or anybody else that could put there. They just couldn't get a regular performing offensive and defensive third baseman. And what they did is they made a trade with the Angels for a, an all-star shortstop. A player that was one of the better players in the American League. And in fact, in the short history of the California Angels franchise, was one of the better known players to play for that team. And that was Jim Fergosi. The thought was with Buddy Harrelson at shortstop, you can move Fergosi, who was a good defensive third base, uh, good defensive shortstop over the third base 
where he'll probably hit a little bit and maybe you know man the keystone for the better part of the next decade that didn't work out so one of the main reasons that the nolan ryan jim fergosi trade didn't work out is that jim fergosi didn't perform as advertised and that's one of the things that seldom gets looked at you say oh man imagine a new york mets rotation in the early 70s of tom Seaver, jerry kuzman and nolan ryan but there were reasons that nolan ryan was not as thought of within his own team none of it was personal none of it was because of a lack of talent it was if you compare nolan ryan in 1971 and 1970 to tom Seaver of that time you weren't talking about equals you weren't talking about pitchers that were on the same level tom Seaver had become one of the best if not the best pitcher in all major league baseball would go out there and give you a nine just about every time he took the ball was the workhorse was the ace nolan ryan did not get a lot of opportunity because he struggled with his control and that was one of the things that kind of held him back in his time with the mets and it doesn't get brought up that much because like i said hindsight is always 2020 when you're looking at at a player that's on a particular team and you wonder hey if you just held on to him would he have been just as good and i don't know if gil hodges and rube walker valued nolan ryan as good or as much as he should have been now like i said you go back in history and you say what if the mets moved nolan ryan into their rotation let's say regularly in 1970 let's say 1969 he helps him out he helps him win a world series the big three three inning relief appearance to finish the game that he did well was a huge huge performance and certainly led to that team uh being in the best position to win a world series that was a great team there was no one individual that carried a new york mets franchise nolan ryan's role that he had on the 1969 team was very much valued but let's say they popped him into the rotation in 1970 and you imagine a starting rotation of tom Seaver, jerry kuzman and nolan ryan well nolan ryan's walk rate was still higher than it, than it should have been in 1970 he walked 6.6 batters per nine innings which even if you're able to keep the hits down it's something that is not conducive for success over a long period of time there's going to be a lot of runs given up and you look at his performance in 1971 6.9 walks per nine innings which by the way from 1972 on through the rest of his career he never approached those numbers in regards to walks per nine innings pitched again now the reason i bring this up is because once again we could live in what happened and what his career was about and just assume that if he stayed with the mets he would have been just as good did the angels after they acquired him in 1972 did they do a better job of curtailing his control did nolan ryan all of a sudden overnight be able to keep the ball in the strike zone enough to reduce the amount of walks that he had per nine innings now the one counter which ends up helping nolan ryan out a lot is the more innings he pitches the less hits he gives up and we know about Nolan Ryan's seven no-hitters. That's a, a record that, by the way, never gets talk, spoken about when it comes to records in baseball that will never be broken. Nobody's ever going to throw seven no-hitters again. But 
Nolan Ryan was able to keep batters off the bases, not necessarily through walk, through lack of walks, but not giving up hits. And starting in 1972, which was the first year that he led the league in least amount of hits per nine innings, 10 times over the course of his career, does Nolan Ryan have the lowest hits per nine innings pitch total in the league? You know, the average, 5.3 in 1972. And that's a big deal. Because if you're walking five batters per nine innings pitch, which he was able to reduce his rate by almost two walks per nine innings, five is still a little high. But if you're walking five guys and giving up five hits per nine innings pitch, that means that's 10 base runners, assuming that there's limited amount of hits hit by pitches. And you're talking about a guy that if he is pitching a complete game, He's given up 10 base runners per nine innings. And yes, five walks is a lot, but five walks is assuming you're giving up 10 hits as well. Most pitchers give up around a hit per inning or a little less than a hit per inning, maybe seven or eight hits per nine innings pitch. Nolan Ryan was able to keep that down to five. Now, did the Mets do a bad job scouting Nolan Ryan? I don't know. I know they had a lot of really good pitching, and it was just it was beyond just Seaver and Kuzman. Tug McGraw, Gary Gentry, eventually John Matlack. You know they keep they keep bringing in very good young arms. Part of it, I think, is a good system that they have in the minor leagues to get these guys ready, and part of it was the lack of success that the Mets had for the better part of the 1960s. You're bad for that long especially when MLB has full-blown instituted a draft, two drafts going on per year. It's constant reward for mediocrity and not being very good. So you get the best selection of the players. And the Mets did a very good job of developing pitching. And in fact, you look at the history of the franchise, it's one thing that they've done well. Whether you're talking about the 60s or the early 70s or the 80s, Obviously, the first decade of the 21st century, you know, starting in 2008, 2009, obviously into the second decade, where you develop guys like Jacob deGrom and Zach Wheeler and Noah Syndergaard, some guys that helped you from coming from other franchises. But to just assume that Nolan Ryan was going to just jump into the Mets rotation and be just as good as he ended up being, for the better part of the, what, 17, 22 seasons that he didn't pitch for the franchise? That's not fair to say. Thinking about the Peter Seitz decision of 1975, which led to free agency, basically ended a reserve clause in Major League Baseball. Obviously, it was a turning point. Players were getting treated not fairly. You understood the old-time stories about Hall of Famers like Stan Musial, who had to go out there and uh, have a second job in the offseason. You know, he worked at a hardware store, or this person worked at a bank, or this person worked uh, in the lumber yard. All different types of jobs that they had in the offseason just to make ends meet. Because the average salary of a Major League Baseball player, even the best, was not enough to feed a family of four or five. And we know families at that time were a little bit larger than they are now. So you're talking about an average of three to four or maybe five kids that each family was having in the 1940s and 50s and 60s up through the 70s. And you look at the fact that the average income for a star baseball player was not very high. So the Peter Seitz decision of 1975 
was really the second stage or actually the turning point in what became full-blown free agency. But the first example of free agency happened a couple of years earlier when Catfish Hunter was had his contract voided by the Oakland Athletics and was awarded free agency. Now, part of Catfish Hunter being awarded free agency was the fact that the owner of the Philadelphia Athletics, Charles Finley, was not liked by Commissioner Bowie Kuhn. And this was something that the, the commissioner would invoke several times of the clause of putting himself in there to say, hey, this is the best, in the best interest of the game of baseball to do it this way. This is why we have to change this. And he did it about four or five different times for Charles Finley, mostly about Finley after the invoke of free agency trying to sell off his players because he didn't want to lose them. He wanted to get money for them because he knew he couldn't pay them over a long period of time. But off of Charles Finley for a second, because one of the more underrated things in baseball history was that the Yankees, quote unquote, stole Catfish Hunter from the athletics. And he was a major reason that the Yankees won the World Series in 1977 and 1978. The unfortunate thing, and I'm going to make another example to back up this point, Catfish Hunter was not a a great Yankee. He was not an all-time Yankee. You see his number 27 out in Monument Park over by the plaques. His number's retired. He's in the Baseball Hall of Fame. When you talk about Catfish Hunter and his accomplishments, you talk about the two World Series championships he won with the New York Yankees in 1977 and 1978 and the AL pennant in 1976, coming off three straight World Series championships in 1972, 73, and 74 as the star pitcher for the Oakland Athletics. And it's just assumed, once again, hindsight, going back in, you know, history goes by. Catfish Hunter, a great athletic, is assumed that he was a great Yankee, and I hate to break it to you, he really wasn't. He was not a great Yankee. He was a good Yankee. In fact, his best season was 1975 when the Yankees did not make the playoffs. Won won over 20 games that year, pitched a career-high 328 innings. Might have been one of his best seasons, as good as his Cy Young season in 1974, which was his last year in Oakland. Finished second in the Cy Young Award that year. 76, he wasn't as good, but was very important. He was the number one pitcher on the New York Yankees pitching staff when it came to the 1976 team that, unfortunately, will be remembered for getting swept by the Cincinnati Reds in the World Series that year doesn't mean it wasn't a great team but you could say within reason that catfish hunter was still the best pitcher on that staff in 1976 now this is his second year he signed a five-year deal as with a as a contract with the new york yankees the first major free agent to be available to be signed but the yankees that year in 76 they needed ed figueroa just as much it's very easy to underestimate the season Doc Ellis had that year. Kenny Holtzman, his old buddy from Oakland, was very important that year too. And of course, the the bullpen led by Sparky Lyle and Dick Tidro to kind of help finish games. Grant Jackson was solid. He had come over from the Baltimore Orioles that year. But you look at Catfish Hunter's 76 season and it's a little 
underwhelming. Not great, not bad. He was still the number one pitcher on the team that year. Going to 77, which is year three. Once again, year three of the five-year contract. So we're looking at Catfish Hunter. Was it a good signing for the Yankees? I think it was a reason that they got out of mediocrity and became a force again in the American League. And remember the problem with the Yankees. 1964 was their last World Series appearance. Some people had said that the Yankees had been to the World Series and won enough World Series. And if they never won another one, it, it would be okay. It would be fair to allow the other teams to catch up. Well, the other teams were catching up. It was 1976, and the, Mets, uh, the Yankees hadn't been in a World Series in 12 years. Once again, 77 comes. Catfish Hunter has a extremely down season. 471 ERA, the highest he had ever had in a full season. He only makes 22 starts that year. Ed Figueroa, Mike Torres, the emergence of Ron Guidry, Don Gullett. And we talk about pitchers from the 70s that, man, if he could have stayed healthy, how good could have Don, could have, could Don Gullett have been had he been pitching through the 80s? He might have been one of the best left-hand pitchers in the game. His stuff was that good. But Catfish Hunter on that team was an afterthought. The Yankees won the World Series. Catfish Hunter pitched in the World Series. But this wasn't a starting pitching staff led by Catfish Hunter. And like you said, we're only talking about year three of the deal. So we go to 1978, a year later, and from a win-loss standpoint, Catfish Hunter, 12-6. and six. If I'm not mistaken, I think he had 10 complete games that year. And I'm saying that because I don't have the numbers right in front of me. Uh, five complete games. So he made 20 starts. He was 12 and six, five complete games. The amount of innings that he threw started to add up on him. And then he has the season. Of course, the Yankees win the World Series in 78. The season in 79, where his ERA is up in the high fives. That's the last year of his contract. He ends up retiring after that year. Now, it's easy to say one of the turning points of the Yankees turning around their franchise was the signing of Catfish Hunter. I think there's a lot that has been said about Reggie Jackson and his impact on that team. None of which, none of which would be would be uh, disputed. Having Reggie Jackson on that team had a lot more to say in the Yankees winning World Series in '77 and '78 than Catfish Hunter. So the point is, the long-winded point, as usual, is the amount of emphasis that was put in the signing of Catfish Hunter and how significant it was for baseball. The fact that Catfish Hunter got out of his contract with the Oakland Athletics, was a free agent, and the Yankees signed him to a five-year deal, there's a lot that's overrated there. It had a great impact on the sport, but was not a very good signing. It was not up there with, let's say, go back 20, 30 years later, the signing of C.C. Sabathia. C.C. Sabathia was worth his contract and more. Max Scherzer, as he enters the seventh year of his contract this year, was worth it plus as much as it possibly could be. Both of those pitchers led their teams to World Series championships. Catfish Hunter, though he's got five of them, did not lead the Yankees to a World Series championship in any one of them. And the other one I want to talk about is Andy Messersmith, because Andy Messersmith was symbolic of what it meant to go from a reserve clause in the free agency. It was his decision and Dave McNally's decision to play the 1975 season without a contract. The way the rules were set, 
is each team and their ownership had the ability to renew a player's contract for the following season with an option for the next season. That's how the contracts were handled. There was no long-term contract. It was set. Here's your salary for next year, and we have an option to bring you back next year if we want. Now, the way out of it was what Marvin Miller thought of, and Messersmith and Dave McNally were the examples to play a full season without a contract which would have been that option here and leave it up to an arbiter to determine whether they qualify for free agency because they played a season for nothing. So they played a season without a contract, which was technically their option season. And it was up to Peter decides Peter sites in December of 1975 as the arbiter to come up with a decision. And he ruled in favor of the players. And for the second time and the first since catfish hunter, Players were granted free agency. Andy Mathersmith, at the time, was pitching for the Dodgers, came off his best season. Dave McNally was pitching for the Montreal Expos. He was injured. Free agency didn't really impact him, but he was used to help Marvin Miller and the Players Association in their argument. So, to talk about Messersmith for a second, he signs a four-year deal with the Atlanta Braves to be their top pitcher. There's a lot of expectations for the Braves in the late 70s. Remember who their manager was. A lot of people forget Bobby Cox was the manager of the Braves, the Hall of Fame manager, the guy that we think of the great run in the 90s and a 14 straight division championships, the what, four times and five times in a World Series, and then one World Series championship. Bobby Cox was managing the Braves in the late 70s, and there was a lot of expectations out of those teams. As adding Messersmith as a top starter was supposed to propel that team to the next level. And it ended up not doing so. Messersmith, after the second year, had his contract sold to the New York Yankees. So this big deal, and once again, it's symbolic because Messersmith and McNally's granting a free agency in the site's decision changed baseball, got rid of the reserve clause, and led to free agency, which players for generations and generations can look back and be thankful and grateful to those players for what they did. But the Andy Messersmith contract with the Braves was not any good. It wasn't. He gave you one good year, was bad the second year, had his contract sold to the Yankees for year three, didn't pitch well for them. The Yankees released him after year three. And it was a free agent again, already getting paid what would have been the fourth year of his deal with the Braves. Signs back with the Dodgers, makes it through August, gets released, and his career is over. So once again, that's the point. We look back at two of the most impactful players when it came to free agency, didn't necessarily sign good contracts. So I promise this show will be a little bit of a fantasy baseball preview. And once again, this is the past ball show brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by St. Alwish's Church in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, one passion food truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. So a couple points I want to talk about fantasy baseball. You think of the way the game has changed. Starting pitchers, if they go five innings, if they go six innings, are considered to have done their job. You got bullpen games. You got openers. You got... The game of baseball that has changed from a starting pitching standpoint very much from those that remember the old uh, mail-in leagues from the 1990s and earlier. 
In fact, if you go back 10 years in fantasy baseball, you talk about how the rules have probably changed. And I think the most important thing I could suggest to you, if you want advice when it comes to fantasy baseball, is to go over and study the point value of all the different stats. See how much a win is valued at. Because you may not believe in a win when it comes to sabermetrics, when it comes to your knowledge of baseball. But what pitchers are going to end up getting the most wins? Is it that star middle reliever? Is it that secondary starter that just goes five innings on a team that's going to score a lot of runs? And the main point I'm going to make when it comes to this is there's a lot of overvalue when it comes to starting pitchers. You go to anybody's list of the top 10, top 20, top 30 players that should be drafted in any fantasy baseball league, there's going to be way too many starting pitchers. And I hate to say it, when you go from the top five or the top six or the top seven, there's a lot of uncertainty. And I don't know if I'm really willing to waste a top pick on a sixth or seventh best starting pitcher in baseball. Because I think there's going to be a lot of pitchers that are going to be on that same level that you could get in later rounds. So I would be more offensive needed happy when it comes to loading up my team. Especially how many roster spots I got. You got a corner infielder. You got a middle infielder. You got two utilities. You got a DH. Whatever you end up having, those extra position values are going to be a lot. I would rather have them filled with quality players that are going to produce top numbers than risk it with a pitcher that may only go five innings, may not get a lot of wins because he's not going long enough in a game, even if he pitches well. What's the value on walks and hits per innings pitch? What's the value on ERA? What's the value on strikeouts per nine innings pitch? How much are you getting per strikeout? You may want to have a couple more closers. What's the value of saves? Do you have a a point allowance for what a hold would be or a scoreless inning? Those are all different things. You might want to study the the bylaws and uh, point values of your particular league. But a couple things I want to go over. And like I said, any any way you want to comment, just throw it on uh, the uh, premiere stream here on YouTube. And I will either comment back or I'll mention it in my next program. So I got a top 20 when it comes to the players that I would draft. And if I had every one of these picks and, of course, the players that I I picked before would assume that they were off the board. So unless I named a player, that means that player is still on the board. So the first player I would still take is Mike Trout. Mike Trout is still the best player in baseball. I think, barring any sort of injury fear, which we haven't seen yet, he's certainly the safest player to take. And you know what his numbers in the past have been? When Mike Trout's at his best, he is amongst the highest in regards to fantasy baseball points in the entire sport. The other guy who's creeping up is Juan Soto. Juan Soto gets a high on-base percentage. He is very slowly becoming one of the best players in baseball. And I take him number two. And I'm I'm buying Fernando Tatis. 
He plays a premium position at shortstop. I think over the course of a full season, if he's healthy, he's going to hit 40-plus home runs. He's got high on base percentage. He's got a ton of energy. He's going to be a legitimate MVP candidate. And how about Mookie Betts, two-time World Series champion, the MVP? If I have the number fourth pick and Trout, Soto, and Tatis are off the board, I'm taking Betts with a number four pick. And I'm taking all four of those players over any pitcher. And it gets to a point where you say, how far do you go before you can't pass up the best pitcher in baseball? And that, of course, is Jacob DeGrom. And I snag him with the number five pick. Now, if you want to take DeGrom one, two, three, or four and want to just have the best pitcher in baseball, I totally understand that. But I do think the value of Trout, Soto, Tatis, and Betts are higher than that of taking Jacob DeGrom. I'd rather have one of those four players than Jake, but I understand if you're worried about having enough starting pitching, which I think is one of the bigger fears that we run into in fantasy baseball, and I don't think it's necessarily true. I think you think you need to have more and stronger starting pitching than you really have, but when you total up the point values of the players that you have that go out there and hit and are playing just about every single game, you're giving up a lot of points for a guy that might make one start a week. DeGrom is that good. So I got him at five. Ronald Acuna, I go with number six. Another transcending type of player. He's going to steal 30 home runs. I'm sorry, hit 30 home runs, steal 30 bases. going to hit 300. Uh, I, I like him if I'm going to build my team around him. And I take Garrett Cole, number seven, as my second starting pitcher. Somebody may say, hey, DeGrom coming off the board. Yeah, Cole is probably your second best choice if you're not named Jacob DeGrom. Then I got Freddie Freeman, Christian Yelich, and Francisco Lindor. Once again, assuming that all these teams are picking their first player. Then I go Shane Bieber, Trey Turner, Cody Bellinger, Lucas Giolito, Jose Ramirez. That's 11 through 15. Alex Bregman, Trevor Story, Raphael Devers, Walker Bueller, Nolan Arenado, 16 through 20. Now, you might be down on Arenado, and maybe you could get Arenado a little bit later if you want to risk. But I, I hate to watch 19 players be selected and Nolan Arenado still be on the board at number 20 without somebody staying him. He's had, obviously, a higher value over the years, and you know that his numbers in Coors Field playing for the Rockies were a little more inflated. He goes to the Cardinals, maybe a little more of a pitcher-friendly ballpark. How much is he going to decline? I think he's motivated. He's motivated to go out there and prove that the greatness of the player, the dominance of the player, the reason he's been so good was not just because he played in Colorado and his home games in Coors Field. And he's playing for a good team. Cardinals are expected to win that division. Him and Paul Goldschmidt should provide one of the best three or fours or two and threes in all of Major League Baseball. I would have a hard time passing on Nolan Arenado at number 20. Number 19, taking Walker Bueller. I don't think that's a stretch either. Bieber, Giolito, Bueller. And I take Bueller over Max Scherzer, Aaron Nola, Trevor Bauer, Hugh Darvish, Blake Snell, Brandon Woodruff, Clayton Kershaw. A lot of really good pitchers, but I'd rather have Bueller and his youth 
And the fact that I could see him pitching more innings than any Dodger pitcher this year. There's him. There's Bauer. There's Kershaw. And I think you, you look at th that team, which is going to be expected to go out there and win the World Series again. Hey, listen, don't make the foolish mistake of taking Bauer. Listen, I think Bauer's going to have a good year. But I think Bueller is set to probably win a Cy Young this year. So I mentioned some pitchers. Once again, Scherzer, Nola, Bauer, Darvish, Snell, Woodruff, Kershaw. Is there anybody that hits my mind off the top of my head as a sleeper? Yeah, you think of Jack Flaherty. If the Cardinals are for real this year, I think he'll have a solid bounce back. You could get him third, fourth, fifth round, something like that. I think it'd be a good investment. Luis Castillo. You think of the Reds kind of being down, but I think that the Pirates are going to be so bad in that division. And you look at the fact that a lot of those teams are on the same level. The Reds, the Cubs, the Brewers, they're, they're going to be beating each other up a lot this year. I think the Reds can win a little more games than expected. Castillo can go out there and be the ace to that staff. No Bauer. Maybe it's Luis Castillo's time. And then I think of some position players that missed out on this top 20. Uh, if, if you have a chance after pick 20 and Bryce Harper's still available, you better pick him up. I'd wait a little bit on Manny Machado. I'd take Anthony Rendon. I'd take Corey Seager. I take even Glaber Torres before I took Manny Machado. But you get to a certain point where you're like, how far are you going to let Manny Machado be available before I scoop him up myself? You're talking, you know, late second, third round. You start to think about that. Uh, Carlos Correa is going to be a free agent at the end of the year. So is Michael Conforto. I think those are two players that you could expect to have really good walk years. And then uh, there's always the question about Aaron Judge. Aaron Judge had a breakout rookie year where he hit the 52 home runs and was thought to be a legitimate MVP candidate in the American League. He hasn't been healthy since. And you'll wonder, are you wasting a pick if you go in a second round and you take an Aaron Judge? You know what he could be if he's healthy. That's the only question. And the other guy they got in the Yankee outfield, Giancarlo Stanton, he may be DH and he may be playing left field, whatever. It's hard to imagine those players being healthy and not putting up you know ridiculous home run numbers so last thing i wanted to bring up and once again it's the fantasy baseball preview past ball show brought to you by john pielli.com st aloysius church in jackson new jersey two ways one passion food truck located in Scranton, pennsylvania i wanted to give you some pluses and minuses when it came to some of the sleeper picks and we go a little deeper into the sleeper picks and we think of top prospects a lot of times we pull up the top prospect list and say, hey, after whatever the sleeper round is, I'm going to make sure I take this player. There's some players I think you should be interested in taking if they're available for sleepers. In fact, I think there's some players that are so good, you may want to take them before the sleeper round. Forget about keeping them next year. That player is going to help you this much on your team this year. And that first player is Randy Arozarena of the Tampa Bay Rays. You saw him in the World Series this past year. He still probably qualifies as a rookie. Or I don't know. I don't know how many at-bats he got last year, but the bottom line is he's still prospect-worthy. He's a guy that's going to hit for some power, certainly going to get a chance to play in Tampa Bay as they move a the couple of their players out like they do every offseason. And another player that I think you should think about 
is Ian Anderson, a pitcher of the Atlanta Braves. I might take Ian Anderson in the fifth or sixth round if he's available. Certainly in the seventh or eighth round. If he's available in the sleeper round and he's not the first player you're taking, you're gonna be a, you're gonna miss out. Ian Anderson's gonna be part of leading that brave staff. Mike Soraka, who's coming off of an injury. Those two pitchers are gonna be just as integral as anybody else in the National League, let alone just for the Braves. So a couple other players I, I would say you could sleep on in regards to being impact players this year. I think one of the things we forget about when it comes to sleeper type of players, you want that player to perform well enough during the given season that they're in that they would naturally become a, a top pick in the next year's draft. You know, a player goes out there like a Fernando Tatis and has the year he had last year. He's certainly a, a first-round type of talent. If you got him as a sleep as a uh, as a keeper, you, he counts as a late-round draft pick, and you get that type of value for him. So I think Wander Franco from the Tampa Bay Rays is going to be playing every day for them, whether it's second base or shortstop. I think he's going to be their regular shortstop. The guy's got some ridiculous power. I would monitor the season that the Kansas City Royals have. I think they're looking to try to compete this year. Um, they, they feel like they could steal some games for the Tigers and maybe the Indians and maybe can be in a race to a point where they could make a couple September type of trade deadline moves to get themselves in a race for a wild card spot. I don't think that's going to happen. And if you're a fantasy baseball fan, you may want to hope that that doesn't happen because that, that would mean that Bobby Wood Jr. is going to come up and play every day for the Royals at shortstop. And of course, Bobby Wood's father was the former Texas Rangers pitcher. Bobby Witt, the shortstop, is a hell of a hitter. Hit a 480-foot bomb in spring training. He's a guy that I think is going to come right up to the major leagues and hit. But I'd be careful. I wouldn't take him in the first sleeper round available. I'd try to get him a little later because there's no guarantee he's going to be up and playing every day. And there's no guarantee that the Royals are going to quit on their season to just bring the younger players up and let them play. They got players that are up there that are supposed to fill spots. And it's very important that they, led by Dayton Moore, keep the image that they're really going to try to compete this year. Jared Kellenick's injury with the Seattle Mariners may impact his ability to start the season on the Mariners roster. Well, of course, if you talk about their former CEO who ended up getting fired for you know making, making stupid comments, uh, he wasn't coming up opening day anyway. Jared Kalanick, of course, known for being in the Robinson Cano, Edwin Diaz trade, coming from the Mets to the Mariners, is going to be a good player. And depending on how the Mariners do this year, not only would I invest in Jared Kalanick as a sleeper pick, but I'd also take a flyer on Taylor Trammell. Taylor Trammell will probably come up at some point this year and get a chance to play every day. The Mariners have a dream outfield of Kalanick and Trammell and Julio Rodriguez. That's going to be the outfielder of the future. You know, who knows if it's going to be, you know, uh, Mays, McCovey, and uh, Bobby Bonds. Time will tell. But I consider Trammell as a late-round pick, as a guy that could come in there and play every day. Remember, they got Kyle Lewis, who won the uh, Rookie of the Year award last year, playing center field. I think you can see something similar out of Taylor Trammell. Other players that I would consider, 
keep Ryan Hayes for the Pittsburgh Pirates, Charlie Hayes' son. At some point, he's going to be playing every day for the Pirates, a team that's got nothing to play for. And if this player is as good as expected, he should put up really good numbers on a bad Pittsburgh team. Christian Pache may get a chance to be an everyday player for the Atlanta Braves. Would have had there been a DH in the National League. Marzell Ozuna is going to be back. Nick Markakis is retiring. Ender in CRTA is more of a fourth outfielder. Of course, they got Acuna there. So Pache could get a chance to play every day in right field. Another player that actually two pitchers. Actually, we'll go three pitchers that I, I think are going to be very valuable for you. If you have a late round pick and want to scoop them up, would be Nate Pearson of Toronto, who I think is going right in their rotation. A Toronto team that's expected to go out there and compete for at least the wild card spot, maybe the division in the American League East. Sixto Sanchez, who we saw last year with the Miami Marlins. The Marlins are expected to be better. Even if they are the fifth best team in that National League East, they still should be able to win about 75 to 80 games. And Sixto Sanchez, by this season, should establish himself as one of the top pitchers on that staff. And the other guy is more of a sleeper. If I, Let's say it's a 25-round draft. Let's say it's a 22-round draft. Your last pick of the draft might not be a bad investment to take Luis Patino for the Tampa Bay Rays. Patino came over in the Blake Snell trade and hasn't emerged very much in his time in San Diego. I don't know if Tampa Bay is going to use him as a starter or a reliever, but hey, if, you know the guy's going to get a lot of strikeouts either way. And he might be somebody that could very slowly and carefully and unexpectedly slide through the radar this year. If Tampa Bay is good, like we automatically expect them to be, regardless of what players they have on their team, somebody's going to have to emerge. There's no more Blake Snell. There's no more Charlie Morton. It's, could Luis Patino be the guy? Big thanks for everybody for tuning in for this past ball show. Once again, if you're following this video on YouTube, comment your, what you liked about it, what you didn't like about it, and a little bit of your fantasy baseball takes. You know, was I on to the things that I was talking about? Is there anything you feel like you could add that could, could help the listeners down the road? We'll be back with you next Thursday as we talk about everything going on in the world of baseball, sports, and unifying America. Hope you have a good week, good weekend. God bless you. And as always, I'll see you on the other side.